Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Brioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. One of our aims on the podcast is to chat with a wide variety of guests drawn from different parts of the investment and finance industry. We encourage listeners to check out previous episodes of the i3 Insights podcast where we consider all sorts of topics including asset allocation, investing in emerging markets, after-tax investing, and quantitative investment strategies. You can also follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. Today I am joined by John Coombe. We first met back in 2011 when I interviewed for a job with John at Jana. Fate intervened and it wasn't to be. My first impression of John was that he's more than happy to call a spade a spade, so I'm really looking forward to this chat. For listeners in Australia, John probably needs no introduction, but for the rest of you, here's a a brief intro. John is a 30-year veteran of the investment consulting business. He joined John A. Nolan & Associates, now more commonly known as Jana Investment Advisors, back in 1988 as John Nolan's first employee. Jana has grown from a single client to around 100 institutional clients with over $350 billion in client funds under advice. The firm also oversees a further $90 billion in implemented consulting portfolios for its clients. We cover so many interesting topics in the podcast, including what investment consulting was like in the early days, the traits that the best fund managers share, is asset allocation an art or a science, and much, much more. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome John to the podcast. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So we usually get started by asking our guests about their background and how they got into their career. How did you get started as an investment consultant? Well, I started as an accountant at the SEC um, and I was very fortunate that a good friend of mine, um, Terry McCredden, who I think you know, who is now on the board of uh, MLC Super, but um, was also the CEO of Telstra Super and Unisuper, um, I'd worked with Terry in the Treasury Department and Terry phoned me up one day and he said, oh, Coombsy, come and have some fun 
in the superannuation fund because he was the CEO of the SEC superannuation fund, which I think at that time was something like the fourth or fifth largest super fund in Australia. And um, anyway, Terry said, uh, come, and, come and have some fun. And so I joined the superannuation fund not knowing anything about investments, but knowing a lot about um, a thing called a personal computer. The SEC ran everything off a big mainframe, but the superannuation fund had just bought this new um, investment management system that required a personal computer. And as I was the only person in the SEC who knew how to use a personal computer, Terry thought I'd be ideal for the job. So I I, I started and I started working with um, Steve Thompson, who's now at Cooper Investors and is a terrific um, equity investor. And Steve taught me a lot about equities, and I used to do some of the bond investing. But um, do you remember what that first piece of software was? I can't, but it's the one that all the custodians used to use for a very, very long time as their bolt-on to do Australia because it had a tax module on the side, and I honestly can't remember the name of it. Um, but it was. Um, but it was interesting. Like it was a very, very interesting time to be in the markets. So I was, I joined in eighty five, or eighty six, uh, and we were just selling equities all the time because the market was so you know buoyant, um, and trading it, <laughs> trading at all time highs. And I still remember. Um, uh, Steve and I used to get told off. We'd go to an investment committee, and John Nolan was the chair of the investment committee. And John would say, I told you guys to sell um, X percent of the share portfolio. And we said to him, we did. <laughs> but the market had recovered it all and we were back at the same level as, you know, as previously. So um, I think I spent the first two or three years just selling shares, <laughs> selling shares all the time. Um, but we were a big portfolio and um, we got involved in um, things like um, takeover of Fosters by Elliott and BHP and all of the, you know, the corporate shenanigans that went on in the late 80s. It was actually quite quite insightful as a young man um, doing that. So you clearly weren't working in a fund that delegated investment management out. It sounds like you're doing everything in-house. No, so that's the start of John, or John A. Nolan and Associates. So John left the SEC, um, he was head of finance, and he started up John Anthony Nolan and Associates, or J-A-N-A, um, and uh, that was in 1987, the day, after the, the day after the crash was when it started. And I was fortunate, um, uh, two days after the crash, John and I went up to Sydney to interview managers because the SEC had decided that they would outsource part of their Aussie equities to external managers. And um, I met Rob Maple Brown two days after the crash. I met um, oh, some of the great names of the time, Se uh, Sedgman and a few others, you know, two days after the crash. And, you know, 40% drop in the market in one day is just... Uh, we've not seen it again, thank goodness. I can assure you it wasn't much fun that day. Do you remember what you were talking about at the time? Was it just the crash or...? No, we talked about philosophy a lot. And um, John, um, as you know, has a um, strong belief that the corporate culture 
and the uh, corporate structure matters a lot in investment um, management. And he learnt that off Budge Collins in the United States. So when um, uh, Jana started, we had two relationships, one with Intersect in um, Connecticut. They were the first guys to do global um, surveys of um, equity managers. And the second one was Budge Collins and Associates out of Newport Beach. And Budge ended up being PAMCO, or well, Collins Associates ended up being PAMCO. And essentially, they used to fund up startup managers. That They always said that was where the, you know, all of the return was. And they would fund up a lot of young startups. And obviously, that led into the hedge fund world eventually for them, not for Jana. But, um, but that's how that evolved, their business evolved. Okay. So you mentioned that backing of startups early. That was going to be one of my questions later on, but you raised it, so we may yeah. as well cover it now. Jana's been quite active in that over the years in identifying managers early. Um, do you think that's been a big part of your success? Without a shadow of a doubt, I think we've helped a lot of managers get started. They've done fantastic jobs for our you know, the, our clients and the members who benefit from from that. And uh, and it's been really interesting to see the growth in the in the market in, in guys willing to back themselves and, and have a go, uh, and ladies, sorry. But, um, but it has been really an interesting time. It started very slowly. Andrew Sisson was the first one at BEM. I suppose Robert Maple Brown really was, you know, one of the. He probably was the first, wasn't he? Um, and we uh, uh, initially we had money with uh, Maple Brown Abbott. Um, as I say, I think I'm the only consultant that sacked them twice. There's a long story behind that. We won't go into that one. But no, but it has been a big part of the success. It has been where Budge was right. Like there is this. If you can get good talent and get it early when it's not got much money, they make a you know a substantial amount of money in the early days for your clients. One of the criticisms that's often levelled against consultants is that they're you know they're afraid to back managers early because they're putting their reputation on the line when they take an idea to a consultant, and also that they want managers that have you know a lot of capacity because they need to be able to get twenty consultants into it to get scale on their research. What is it that what is it about Jana that allowed you to do something that possibly other consultants were afraid to do? Oh, John's very entrepreneurial himself. I remember he started up Jana himself um, with a little bit of backing from Bruce Cook, but essentially like um, John is a s- starter of small businesses. He understands that and I mean I think the most important thing from our perspective is we try to make managers profitable because the last thing you want to do and it has happened to me once it won't happen again um, you basically back a manager but they're not profitable well that's a disaster for you reputational wise because they end up shutting down because they're not profitable and you end up having to go and find another manager and you do lose some credibility with clients. Look, we haven't got every startup manager, right? I'll I'll confess to that. We, but the hit, hit rate's pretty high, but it's not 100%. I'd like to 
I'd like to lie and say it was. <laughs> I'm sure there's some stories there. Maybe you you feel comfortable telling us uh, some of the ones that didn't go so well. Don't have to mention them by name, but you know what went wrong. Well, uh, generally, the 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 one common trait in the whole uh, the ones that haven't worked um, was the backing and the capital structure of the organisation. It wasn't that the people were poor investors. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, it's just that they didn't have the corporate backing, the corporate structure, to enable them um, that startup period before you be get before you become profitable, and and it, and it put too much pressure on them. And 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 then, if you've got a team of four or five, not everyone's got the same financial backing. So if you have a person who's, you know, maybe got a couple of kids, private schools, etc., they can last for a little while off their past savings, but after a while the missus is in their ear and going, you know, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to bring in money and paying the bills? So that is generally the pressure point. The pressure point's um, that start-up phase, that one or two years. Okay. So coming back to the early days at Jana, you've uh, you've joined John at Jana. What did you do? What did you start out? Doing? I did everything. <laughs> there was only two of us. We did. Um, but what was consulting like back then? What were the sort of questions you were helping your clients with? Well, we were trying to convince clients to get out of balance funds and into sector specialists. So I I will give um, credit where credit due. John. Uh, basically started the trend of telling clients managers aren't good at everything. Pick them for what they're good at, give them the money in that asset class and build out a portfolio on the best managers in each asset class. So we were pretty radical in the early... um, Well, it was the way the SEC was run. Like we had a team running, you know, fixed interest. Team, one person. Um, (laughs) A team running equities, a team running property, etc. So it wasn't like it, it was foreign to us. It was how we were running money at the SEC. And in fact, if you went into the bigger balance shops like BT and um, AMP and Colonial in those days here in Melbourne and National Mutual, they were all run on the same lines. They were all in these sector specialised areas, but. But the product that was sold to the marketplace was a balanced fund, and that was the thing. There were most people had three balanced funds. MLC started, it, you know, its whole premise of existence in the corporate super world was we will be the medium fund in the surveys, and then you can put your hot shots either side, you know, but we'll always give you median return in the survey. So, and it was a very successful. Campaign, they had a third of all corporate super. So we came in with this idea that you could pick specialist managers and get a better outcome. Okay, so what was the reception to that idea in the early days? Did people think you were crazy or did a particular event change people's minds? Or I think we were sort of lucky with the property boom um, at the end of the, well, the property bust, boom and bust at the end of the 1990s. John had sort of formed a view that, um, and he was right, um, that property 
and this was because the SEC was a big property owner. The SEC Superfund was a big property owner. We owned properties down St Kilda Road and we'd been selling them, right, um, into anyone who wanted to buy them. But there was all this property going up in Collins Street, like three... 336 or whatever it is across the road. 333, yeah. 333. All of those were being built um, at the time and it was and there was cranes everywhere. Like, it, it, And the finance was, you know, super competitive and the banks were lending like crazy. Um, and so we basically told our clients don't own any property and we took all of the... So the first three clients we had... We, if they had property, we sold it. If they were in a balance fund that had property, we got out of it. They literally had no property, and so in in and, and also we started working for Australian Super, or which was ARF in those days, and we started working for Rest, and all of their money. I mean, it was a beautiful place to start. They had all of their money in either AMP Capital Guaranteed or National Mutual Capital Guaranteed, and so we had to take those portfolios and all this new cash flow and put it into asset classes that we thought were going to do okay. Well, the asset class we thought was going to do terrible was property, and so we stayed right out of it. And so these clients had a fantastic run through the first part of the nineteen, the early 1990s because they didn't own any property. And then we're probably the first consultant to ever do it, but we used to take the National Mutual and AMP property unit prices and actually graph graph them and where they were going and that was our proxy for the Australian property market and AMP had dropped their property unit price by something like 20% and National Mutual had dropped theirs by five. There was something wrong <laughs> in Melbourne at National Mutual which subsequently there was but so we basically said that well there's an anomaly here because these property prices are starting to look reasonably cheap value relative to the share market. And um, and uh, we did the biggest asset allocation call, I think, in the firm's history. We Western Mining had no property. Uh, Don Morley was the chief financial officer. Uh, John went on holidays in... Um, mid-January to do his fly fishing because that's what what he loves to do. And I was left with the instruction that if the stock market kept going up to um, a particular level, I was to call Don and we were going to switch um, 10% out of equities and into A&P property unit All on one day. All on one day. The stock market hit a high, I think it was the 18th of February. <laughs> I'm not 100% certain about the date, but I think it was the 18th of February. Uh, it was up 73% in 12 months. It's the highest, I think it's historically the highest one year rolling 12-month return. Anyway, it was up 73%. <laughs> I phoned up Don Morley and, and I still remember the phone call. Don goes, are you certain, John? And I said, yes, Don. <laughs> <laughs> with all the conviction that I could muster. <laughs> We're on a rocket ship and you want to get off. <laughs> We're about to go to the moon. And, but I suppose we were lucky because the 87 crash was still fresh in people's mind. And so it wasn't that hard. A, do you know what I mean? It was a hard sell, but it wasn't an impossible sell. Anyway, so we, we actually shifted 
something like 15% in the end out of equities and into property. And and look, to be blunt, it was the timing from heaven because I don't I don't know don't know whether you remember, but in 1994. Um, Alan Green, Greenspan started raising interest rates. I was in primary school. You were in primary school. Uh, but he started raising interest rates. That was the only year that the uh, bond market had ever lost money, right, ever in the history because we'd reconstructed all the history of the indices back over time. And, and basically, how fortuitous. Here we are in property that had been hammered and we're out of equities, which was getting absolutely slaughtered because bond rates had risen and gone negative. So it was um, uh, it was a lovely call. <laughs> I, I had the, the pleasure of interviewing Jeremy Grantham in his office back in February, and one of the things we spoke about was his early career and some of the early calls that he got right. Yeah. And in that conversation, we, we were discussing the importance of getting a big call right early. Yeah. Um, do you think that has been a big part of Jana's success? Like, would Jana yes. be Jana if you hadn't have no, got that? No, no. If we'd got that wrong, like if we seriously got that wrong, um, very hard to have got it wrong, to be honest. But but um, in hindsight, but at the time it was, you know, the stock market's up seventy three percent. Everything looks rosy as anything, right? Coming off, um, you know, interest rates falling, um, all of that sort of the recession. We had to have, um, but um, it did look. It it didn't feel like a big call. I I think the biggest, the next biggest call that we made in um, in an asset allocation call was coming into two thousand in the tech boom, and um, like we were working for West Farmers, and one of the premises that we sort of had from Michael Cheney, who was the um, I think he was CFO at the time. He was he'd moved into the CEO job, but we well he basically gave us a a, um, a mandate to maintain their surplus for as long as possible, and that and so he was our first client, two, uh, 1988, and we'd kept the surplus, and then we're coming up towards the tech boom, and um, we convinced Michael that he should have virtually. Uh, think we had no US equities, none whatsoever. Um, market was frothy, but that was a year and a half before it peaked, right? And I don't know, and you were probably still at school then, but the... the I'm starting to remember by this day. The peak, the peak happened in um, March 2000. So what was that year and a half like? It wasn't too... It was painful, like at rest... We'd gone down to ten percent in global equities, the lowest they could go, and um, I remember saying to John, "We can't go any lower. We honestly can't go any lower in in global equities. So we're just got to be smart about it. So why don't we hire a value manager because they've got cleaned up, and they're not buying any of this crap, um, and we went to the rest board and we said." We're going to hire a, a global value manager. We're going to hire the best of the worst because <laughs> the value managers were all terrible. They'd underperformed by 10 15% under the index. Like that, It was terrible, right? But we hired the best of the worst. 
which was Brandy's in those days. And the following year, um, I think the US stock market was down something like uh, 35% or something. That portfolio was up 35 Like it was just magic. Like 65% of the stocks hadn't risen in that rally. But in the next year, that 65 rallied. But the 35 who were trading on enormous valuations all plummeted to, and some of them didn't exist. So the market was down a lot, but the actual, mm. by number of stocks, there was 65% rose that following year. So as long as you were in the value manager, you did okay. So that was a really, that was interesting. I used to go along to events, and remember I'd shifted up to Sydney now. I'd go along to events, and we'd done 20 pages of, presentations for clients to prove why all of this technology stuff was just smoke and mirrors and that it was always going to end in tears well so i so we thought um and i'd go along to presentations at pt and they were buying everything that we were saying was rubbish <laughs> and, and i remember having a fight a, a conversation at um an amp function and jeff rogers who you know jeff was in the uh in the camp of you should be in global, John, you should be in global. And I said, Jeff, so you're willing to give up franking credits and tax benefits? Because uh, remember, it was, you know, the full franking um, regime was in, in vogue then. You're willing to give that up just to go and buy something that has no earnings? <laughs> it was quite a funny little tate-a-tate at a, at a meeting and uh, I remember Michael Lillycrap from Rest who was sitting next to me he said, I don't know I don't know whether you won, John, but at least your point was well made. <laughs> it was entertaining. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't help thinking as you're talking about these shifts and the question of peer risk comes to mind. Were institutional investors far less concerned about what other funds were doing? To make those sorts of shifts, or oh yeah, oh a lot, but but the biggest difference, right? And the biggest the biggest change in super was when the coalition um, had come to power, and and they basically uh, said you had to introduce choice. Choice, by its very nature, takes the asset allocation decision away from trustees and puts it back on the individual investor, right? That was, in my opinion, the biggest change that had happened in the super industry because prior to that, everyone just run their, ran their own balance fund and you ran it based on the membership profile, um, in a lot of cases, defined benefit, liabilities, etc. You go into, a, you come to the end of the 1990s and choice is introduced. Well, by its own very nature, once you introduce four or five different options, what have you done? You've narrowed the range around which you can move the asset allocation because if you've got a balanced option, it can't look like a growth option. It can't look like the capital stable either. So you've really narrowed this range. And I always said um, to anyone that wanted to listen that that was we were stymieing asset allocation. Um, I think Kingy and I, um, Ray King, basically talked about how funds should, you know, all of it came out of your asset allocation. I said, Ray, that's that's history. Because once you've introduced choice and you've narrowed the range, 
the amount you can get out of asset allocation is narrowed in terms of its impact on your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So choice was the biggest change to that. Mm-hmm. Did, did choice also have an impact on the way trustees approached their roles? Yeah, because remember they introduced licensing of trustees. So that's why Jana sold it, sold the business to um, MLC NAB um, in 2000 because we had so many corporate, um, we, we were 80% corporate funds back in 2000 and all of them were talking about going into a master fund or, you know, getting out of super. No, no corporate um, fund that we worked for wanted their executives having to do 30 hours of training to keep a licence. They just wanted to offload their, you know, the... Which was a real shame. Well, it sounds like it was quite an interesting and dynamic uh, industry before uh, everybody decided to give it away. Yeah, it was. And there was lots of funds and probably APRA doesn't like, you know, didn't like the fact that there were so many corporate funds. But, I mean, back in those days, super was part of the whole package that you offered people. And so government funds offered, you know, higher... um, levels of contribution rates in some of the funds uh, that we started working for there was a staff superannuation fund so staff members were given you know bonuses and and additional you know contributions into their super and then you had the wages guys um, you know they were in a separate scheme and all that sort of stuff so it was really seen as part of the HR benefit um, regime um, much much less that today, much, much less. So you you touched on the topic of asset allocation and one of the things I've always wondered is you can look at, and there have been various studies and the number varies from study to study. Some studies say it's 50%, others 75, 90 or 95% of, usually it's risk, but sometimes the studies look at return, is determined by asset allocation. Now, if that's the case, if you look at what the typical institution spends on uh, trying to find active managers to pick stocks, the fee budget is probably somewhere between 20 and 50 times, depending on the size of the fund, what they spend their consultant for asset allocation advice. So I've always wondered what gives. If it's the most important part of your investing decision, why are you paying 20 to 50 times more for the other stuff? Because history tells us it's the hardest game in town. Um, and Jeremy Grantham would have touched on it. Absolutely. Um, that mean reversion works, but sometimes it takes a long time to, to work. And sometimes you have re- regime changes. And um, uh, I don't know whether you talked to Jeremy about, you know, the profit share component. We did, yes. But but GMO always had that that you know the stock market was over earning because you know the share going to s- shareholders was higher than historic. Well, that has not come down. So whether that's a permanent shift, I actually do think it, it is a permanent shift. I think um, a lot of people get remunerated nowadays through share ownership. You know, if you work f- for a bank or someone like that, 
part of your bonus is is in the share you know in the shares that get issued so i think there's a higher percentage of people linked through their remuneration into the into the stocks of the companies they work for but asset allocation there's a lot of times when you shouldn't do anything mm-hmm. sometimes i go along to clients and i'm thinking to myself what am i going to tell them because i know markets are a little bit expensive at the moment like in a longer term, doesn't matter whether you look at EPS or you know uh, PEs, free cash flow, all of the, all of the matrices, it doesn't look cheap, right? No market does. But then it becomes a relative gain. And am I going to put take my money out of the a stock market, stick it in the cash at zero if I'm overseas negative, you know, pay for, pay for my cash to sit in the bank. How foreign is that? Anyway, um, or put it into a bond market where I get negative real yields after inflation, or do I live in the stock market, earn a yield, even though I know that there's going to be volatility around that capital? Well, my, I, I have learnt one thing in 30 years of consulting. Just one? There's one lesson you should learn, Daniel. Okay. It's a very simple lesson. Please, enlighten us. Never bet against the central banks. Okay. You can go out of business. I learnt that. Tim Hughes taught me that. He bet against the RBA um, back in the uh, 1990s. He was running bond portfolios in his own little business and he bet against he said inflation was going to get high and the Reserve Bank of Australia was not going to control inflation. He bet, you know, put duration positions on for that outcome. Three years later or four years later, he was out of business. His clients had given up on him and he was never right. The Reserve Bank has kept inflation in the in the range pretty much for since they got the... So if central banks are pump-priming in the world or their own economies, you you don't want to go short equities. <laughs> you seriously don't want to be short equities. You might take a little bit off the top. You might be 1% or 2% under because the valuations are high. Would, would you but re- you wouldn't punt 10. <laughs> would, you, would you repeat your, your trick from uh, the, the tech bubble of maybe hiring a value manager here or there to sort of fade the yes. valuations? Yeah, obviously if... if one part of them, so you do things within asset classes, which you hope are smart, right? So if um, a part of the market's trading at a 25% discount to the rest of the market, what do you do? Well, you should go and have a real good hard look at it. There might be a structural reason why you shouldn't be there, but if there's no structural reason why you shouldn't be there, you probably should buy it, right? So you should be looking around within asset classes as to the cheapest less risky way of investing into that. But at a broad AA, but you're a very brave person. I mean, I love risk models, but everyone knows that 90% of all risk comes from the equity market. And so it doesn't matter. As soon as I've got own one equity, I'm I'm in strife from a risk perspective. So 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 it's a matter of even within equities, is there somewhere in the equity market that looks much more attractive than somewhere else? Do, do you find, I'd be interested because you obviously deal with more trustees than I've dealt with, 
But in my experience, I've found it much harder to convince trustees to make shifts within asset classes rather than between them. It, it always seemed easier to say we're taking money from equities or bonds rather than, you know, we're shifting between investment grade and high yield or between emerging markets and developed markets or something like that. Well, I think um, one of your... Um, Which I, I've never understood why. I think our trustees are getting more sophisticated. And I think um, the fact that they've got internal teams, a lot of the way they will look to their internal teams and they'll look to their internal teams and if their internal teams sort of go, yeah, we agree, then then it sort of, you know, it, it reinforces it. It's not them making the decision so much as their team is and they're really just backing their team and the, and the, and the meeting of the minds between your internal team and your consultant. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's if there was a very big differential between those things, but no trustee wants to see their consultant fighting with their internal team. No, well, there goes their legal protection if that happens. <laughs> what do they tell the judge? You know? Don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to put you in the hot seat now. There have been a lot of studies. I saw one recently came out of Oxford Business School. Yep. Calling into question the value that investment consultants add by picking managers. Yep, I read the article. I'd love to hear your take on it. Maybe right. I mean, um, I look, look, I look at our results uh, uh, across our client base, and we do have mixed results. But in general, in Aussie equities, our, our managers have added value. In global, they have, but it's been less consistent and it's been more style and um, our, our, us calling different parts of the market like EM. So when we've called EM right, our clients have really benefited from that, but we've probably stayed in too long, if I'm honest, and and that's sort of dragged uh, investments down. Uh, value's been very difficult the last five years in global in particular. And so if you've got a value orientation, and, and we do as a philosophy, you know, have a value valuation philosophy, it's been difficult. But it, but we've done relatively well compared to others. Look, where you, this would be my criticism of that particular study. A, it looked like they were looking through retail returns, not wholesale returns. If you've ever looked through those retail products, some managers have six or seven different products in them, ranging from growth to value to core or whatever. Different share classes with different yeah, fees. Yeah, and all of that sort of stuff. So to me, I worry about like that there's – you haven't narrowed the field to being the the one manager one stop. Do you know what I mean? Like um, – and that you're looking at pears and oranges, and some of those funds have got one dollar, you know, one million dollars in them, and some have got billions of dollars in them. Um, I know which one matters the most in terms of um, the outcome for a lot of investors. Um, so I read it with a lot of interest. I I I, I sort of s struggle with academics looking through performance tables and performance results. And coming up with conclusions because they might well be right. Um, but the other thing is, it also highlighted that the international consulting firms, the really big ones, 
have this process where they rank the managers and therefore if you're a client you're meant to have you know the top three or four well if you're one of those really big guys and you're advising let's call it 500 billion or a trillion dollars worth of investments and you're trying to stick them all in the same manager configuration you're just going to cause massive issues we don't do that well you'll you'll give up that edge that we spoke about earlier which is backing yeah. interesting managers early you pretty much well, ruled yeah. out of that but we would we would never do that anyway we don't think this um you know four managers should always have you know in a manager lineup because it doesn't take into account your the client risk profile etc like some of our clients they couldn't stand having some of the small cap guys and things that we have where, yeah, they add value over time, but they can be five or six under, you know, in a year, right? Or our really aggressive, high-octane, concentrated portfolios where they're down five in a quarter, up 10 over the year. Yeah, it's wonderful when they're up 10 over the year, but it's terrible when they're down five in a quarter. So that's the sort of... You got you. You got to have managers that fit the profile of the client as well. Okay, so you mentioned that you're not convinced about academics looking into investment consultant. What about regulators? Uh, consultants have received a lot of scrutiny in the UK. Yep, and they have, and probably justifiably so. I actually made a comment after the um, 2000 uh, tech bubble that I would throw in all of the. Um, UK consultants in the Thames and let them drown. I mean, I think they did an appalling job. I mean, they were sitting there with, uh, I think the average UK pension fund had something like 85% in equities, global and domestic. I mean, the interesting thing was, having had West Farmers, as I said before, with no US equities, we actually would have been better had we had no UK equities and no German equities because actually those two markets performed even worse than than um, the US because the big telecom companies in both those markets went to extraordinary valuations. Well, wasn't Vodafone yeah, a correct. huge part of the UK yeah, market? It was, yeah, I think it was 15%. Well, well, so was News Corp. And you had Nokia as well in Finland. and yeah. 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 So, so you would have been better off actually <laughs> getting out of the European markets. But anyway, well, that moves me on nicely to my next question: How is consulting different in Australia to other countries? Well, having never consulted in another country, I'm not other than New Zealand. Does that count? It does. It I, does. We should say that it counts for yeah, them. We, we do. should. It yeah. does, and it is completely different. Let me yeah. tell you, they're much more. Uh, internationally orientated and an absolute return in the way they think about markets, which is quite refreshing. There are no surveys over there. They don't care, right? It's more about, you know... Would you end the surveys tomorrow if you could? Do you uh, think they help? They don't help. I don't think members ever read them. Members never look at them. Yeah. Uh, the only people who look at them are trustees and consultants. Where I get really <laughs> scared is where I see people's variable comp linked to... A survey, and I've seen that a couple of times. Um, there's some large funds that do that, and I think that's a really well. Mine idea. isn't, Daniel. So that's you'll good. Be pleased well, mine about definitely that. isn't now. <laughs> no. So. Um, yeah, but but I do think um, it is an issue that uh, um, the the surveys 
you could argue the survey is the collective wisdom of all participants in the super industry at a point in time. I'm not 100% certain about that, but it could well be. I I did have a colleague, Rob Clark, who was um, the CIO at Rothschilds when they bought in that their asset allocation for their balance fund was going to be the average of all of the other um, funds in the surveys. And, I, and uh, he and I had um, wonderful debates over <laughs> glasses of red wine <laughs> about how, in my point of view, how stupid that was and in his point of view, how um, correct it was from a business perspective. So it depends whether you're running it as a business. If you're running it as a business, I think you do have to be aware of where where your competitors are because you don't want to be sitting out on a limb for too long and and it and it costing you your business. Okay. What qualities would you say make a good investment consultant? Um, a questioning mind, willing to ask really stupid questions at times. What's the dumbest question you've asked somebody Personally. recently? <laughs> uh, I can remember uh, starting out, I didn't know what tracking error was. No. That was probably my, my dumbest question, figuring out what tracking error was. Uh, I still don't know that the answer is particularly useful. but <laughs> All right, I, I think I asked a bond manager about convexity once, <laughs> and I clearly didn't know what I was talking about, and yet I'd manage bonds, uh, which was... Clearly, I'd forgotten what I learned, <laughs> but um, no, um, I don't mean. I, I just think um, a consultant should have a view, but should realise that their view isn't necessarily right. It's just a view. There's nothing right or wrong in investments, really. Mm-hmm. It's just you've got a view. Someone else has got a view. You're you can your use beliefs, that. Really, view, yeah. You can use that view to question someone and see the strength of their conviction. And, and their knowledge about certain um, things. I used to ask people about West Farmers all the time, right? West Farmers was our first client. I got to know them really well. I even bought shares in it um, because I thought they're the smartest people on the block, right? I would go along to fund managers and I'd ask them about West Farmer. It was clear to me I knew more about West Farmers than the blokes who I, who I was paying to manage money because they clearly didn't have any clue about uh, what management was doing within West Farmers. So that was, to me, it was a knowledge point for me. We worked for Maine Nicholas, and I remember the company secretary at the time, um, I won't name his name, but he told me something, and I knew (laughs) that the company was in trouble, right? I would go along and talk to my friends in the funds management world Oh no! Wonderful company. Everything's going on. fantastic. Three months later, they <laughs> profit announcement. Everybody hates them. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes you get insight through your through your contacts. You shouldn't. Do, you, you can't obviously go out and share that, but you can test people um, about their knowledge about things. Okay. So, talking about fund managers, do ex fund managers make good consultants, or is it a different? Skill set. Consulting's a really uh, funny art because you, you you come up with ideas, you listen to a whole lot of people, um, then you've got to put it into words and put it on a piece of paper, hand it to somebody else, and then debate whether you're right about the future or you're wrong about the future. But because um, you're not really doing anything other than offering opinions, aren't you? Correct. At yeah. the end of the day, 
I mean, that's why I worry about people who are so sure of themselves that they actually think they know what's going to happen. We're in the game about looking into the future and making educated guesses about what might happen and then building portfolios that hopefully, you know, can survive through those scenarios. But you really don't know which one's going to work out. Like, you, you have no idea. I can paint you a picture of doom and gloom and I can paint you a picture of rosiness and it's all in the matter of the delivery. So I think that's a really important point about making educated guesses. And you see that in lots of different ways in investing, whether it's a, a stock manager getting you know, sometimes less than half their picks correct, but still making a lot of money because the ones that they did get correct, they obviously back Do you want a wonderful stat? Sure. There's a, there's a value manager. I asked them this question. On the first dollar they put in, their hit rate was less than 50. Their hit rate on the second dollar they put in, 52. Their hit rate on the third dollar they put in, in other words, wrong, wrong, 75. Right, so you think you got it right when you put your first dollar in. You still think you got it right. You've been really brave on the third dollar, right? But it's generally, if you're right, that's the one you're going to make the most out of. Really interesting yeah. stat, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I've seen um, similar sorts of dynamics with, with growth managers. There's a ex-Tiger Cub I'm thinking of yeah. where his hit rate on stocks is less than 40% of his picks right, and yet the alpha has been phenomenal because where he has backed uh, something with a larger position, his hit rate has been much yeah, higher. Yeah, but you'll, I'll bet you he starts low, and as his conviction gets higher, he puts more and more in. Sure. Right. You're probably right. Yeah. So my question is, if 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 in so much of investing is about testing educated guesses, mm. how do you make it easier to do that in a highly regulated, bureaucratic, committee-based, consensus decision-making environment like super? Because to me, all of those things, are they, they almost all get in the way of taking educated guesses and testing hypotheses. So how do you... How do you manage the tension between the two? By admitting that you don't know everything. And sometimes, and I learnt this off John actually early on, you know, sometimes giving on the little things that really don't matter, where you're sort of like, eh, they might be right, I might be right. I'm not going to fight over this. <laughs> you can have that win, right? But yeah. but, but a bit like Jeremy, you know, you're... you're um, your uh, what's he called? Your, your points, your um, your um, what, your blue chips. Is that oh what well, it, it's it, it's your career points. Yeah. When you want to throw your career <laughs> on the line, keep a little bit back sometimes for the big day when you really want to have a big swing, and you got to convince people to buy the worst the best manager in the worst part of the market, right? Because that's the time you'll make a lot of money, but you're going to have to use career points to get there. So give up on the the things that, you know, the 1% manager that doesn't make any difference. Like at the end of the day, it's not going to make one. 
iota of a difference. But on the big one, be ready to stand up and fight hard. Okay. So talking, But they only yeah. come along every now and again. So it's a bit like Warren Buffett's punch card. You've got sort of 10 career calls, and if you thought of it that way, you'd be much more cautious about making sure that you... Well, it's like today. Like we, we at Jana today, we have... We probably haven't changed our asset allocation views for nearly three years. And you could say, oh, aren't you weak? But the reality is we've been in this hiatus of you know, easy money for nearly 15 years, 10 years, and, and basically you're punting against the, you know, the reserve banks of the world. Well, yeah, the regime's starting to change, but it's still easy money anywhere you look around the world. So... It's right to be cautious about taking big asset allocation calls. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes it's right to be cautious. Other times, no, you've got to stand up for your convictions and, and stand up and hit the table. But it's not very often. So, so how do you learn when to play it safe and when to swing the bat? Um, just, is that just experience Getting time? belted up a few times. <laughs> 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 Having a few chairmen's phone you up and go, John, that didn't go so well today. <laughs> no, look, um, you, you, you uh, it's an art. It, it's relationship management, and you've got to be very careful that you don't kill the relationship because you're dogmatic about something that really you have no. Look, you might think there's a nods-on chance that you're right, but. You might be wrong too. You might very well be wrong. Okay. So it's I think, humility. I think there's some great great advice there in your comments. So you've been privileged to meet some of the best fund managers around the world. Yep. It's what? one of the great highlights of my life, actually. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. So you're the perfect person to ask this question to. What makes a good fund manager... What are the what are the common traits? And on the flip side, what are the red flags where you're out of there as soon as you see them? Um, it isn't humility. <laughs> Interestingly enough, no, no. Actually, um, the really great fund managers that I've come across have an investment philosophy which they truly believe in, right, and live by it. And and are hundred percent wedded to that process. Now it can be a growth guy, can be a value guy, can be a quality person, but they do have a philosophy that at the end of the day, um, I, I my colleagues hate me saying this, but I think ninety percent of returns are driven by a fund manager's investment philosophy. About ten percent comes from their skill at picking some of the better stocks using that philosophy. I agree with you. It's uh, markets pick managers and not the other yeah. way around. Yeah, no. But but it's the conviction in the manager to stay the course. The other thing is they've generally been successful somewhere, whether it's school, sporting or somewhere, and have this desire to win. They know what winning feels like. They want to have that high again if you like a runner, you know, he keeps running marathons and gets that adrenaline high. Um, they know what winning's like. They like winning, and and they keep wanting to win. Okay. And on the negative side, 
And probably one of the reasons why Australian fund managers aren't too bad in against the rest of the world because Australians are actually very competitive, right? Um, the bad ones, um, I'm going to be really horrible here, but I'm going to say the worst ones I've come across have come out of broking and and they know how to sell a story but they're not investors in any sense. They basically have come onto the buy side because they got sick of the sell side, but they're not great investors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they they listen too much. The other one is is a bit of hubris when, you know, I remember walking out of one fund manager and he told me, all the smartest people in the world and they work the hardest. And I said, so how do you know that? I said, oh, I've been a consultant for 20 years. Tell me how you know you work the hardest. <laughs> and you should have seen him trying to bullshit his way around all this. Oh, because we see them now. You know, we... Blah, blah. And I'm going, you have no idea. It's, it's, it's funny you say that. It's never Sorry. ceased to... Um surprise me how little fund managers really know of their competition no yeah i was constantly amazed at that and it's worse when you go into the big financial centers like new york and london i mean i am amazed in london (laughs) it's it's not that big an area let's be honest and most square mile and yeah but but, yeah but it's pretty concentrated you go and um, uh, ask a fund manager in, in London who's your competitor in your space. They don't know. I mean, it's like, what? what? You'd think they'd be... They're run- around the corner. <laughs> oh, well, you'd think they'd be running into them at AGMs and they'd see each other on yeah. the register or they'd even look at who else is on the register. No, it's funny. Whether they don't care and they just focus on their own business. Which is the I, ultimate... I don't really understand that. But because, you see, that's the ultimate irony because yeah. their business is to be the stu- students of business. Yeah. And if they're not applying their skills to their own business in their own industry, then what are they doing? I've yeah, I do laugh that. at fund managers who tell me the ha- what they've told um, company management about how to run their businesses. And I'm thinking, boys, you don't know how to run your own business, <laughs> let alone telling somebody else how to run their business. I'd have a little bit more humility. But anyway. No, okay. no, to be honest, fund managers aren't great at running their own businesses. I, I actually do quite like guys who who know they're not great at it and hire business managers or have a you know, an equity partner that does do all of that because most of them are good at it. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an interesting observation. Mm. So in terms of funds management it seems to be becoming, becoming more and more quantitative. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing? I, I actually think um, it's been this way for a long time and um, and a lot of people haven't noticed it. But um, if I go back across my whole history, um, I think, you know, screening for by style managers and other techniques like that has been going on for at least 20-odd years. So the fact that it's gone the whole hog and we've taken <laughs> analysts out of it um, to come at outcomes, I don't know that it's any bigger. I would have argued, actually, that if I looked at what was 
happening. Well, Ian Patrick was the one who pointed this out to me, and I should have listened to him a lot harder, I tell you. Um, but around the uh, 2007, 2008 area, um, there was a hell of a lot of money in, in hedge fund land being run on simple quant. Tons of it in Asia. And it, and it had all basically started up in the prior three to f- four years, running long shorts, Asian equities, Aussie equities, a little bit of global. But the number of guys doing it had exploded, right? The amount of dollars on it was had exploded. You had the even the internal prop desks running quantitative processes as well. <coughs> so I would argue that it was bigger then. Today, yeah, there's the biggest phenomena today is passive, not well, smart beta as well. Well, not really. It's not, not big by size, but it's growing fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a lot of techniques being done on it, long, short, alt, alt beaters and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. But um, I don't think it's as big if you took it in aggregate as it probably was back in 08, 07, 08. I mean, we actually, in 09, I took my medicine and we got out of nearly all of our quant. Because I said the regime was just wrong for quantitative techniques at that point in time. You had too much volatility um, in style, rotation and stuff. And we didn't really get back into quant until 2011. So quant isn't a process that works all the time, in my humble opinion. Like it, it works most of the time, but it can get crowded. And 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 it, and the value signals are classic value signals, and if value's getting hurt, trust me, your quant's going to get hurt because or if the, the Fed has got its hand on the scale. Yeah, well, but but quant always gets hurt when value and quality get hurt. So because that's the backbone of two of the, you know, probably half the strategy. Mm-hmm. Performance fees. Do they ever make sense for clients? I mean, they're great for managers, but um, well, I've gone from a fund that wouldn't wouldn't hire a manager unless they did a performance fee. I'm not naming names here, but um, they would have had at one stage eighty percent of all of their equity bond managers on performance fees. Um, They thought it incentivised better outcomes. I don't think it changed the outcome. I don't think a manager tries harder just because he's got a performance fee um, regime than he does if he was just running a... Now, I'm talking long only there. I then go into the hedge fund world and I think performance fees drives everything. I think they're structured wrong. Performance fees off cash are just... Totally wrong because it's a benchmark that doesn't reflect the risk. Just, it feels wrong. It feels like a transfer of wealth (laughs) that um, I actually think 
we'll look back in history and some of the hedge funds, we will look back and say that is in history's eyes the greatest transfer of wealth from the people who had it to the people who wanted it. And they didn't give you much back in return for it. You know, I don't want paying it. Like a performance fee to a private equity guy who's doing 14s, 15s, maybe 24s, like it feels good to pay someone like that. I remember at the SEC when I first started in super, uh, we hired some of those baby tigers that you talked about earlier um, because Collins had put us into them. And I remember we wrote out a uh, $21 million. This, This is my memory. Back in 1986, we wrote out a $21 million check to one of the tigers and uh, the trustee board hated it so much that we sacked that manager the following year. It's terrible, but it was it stuck true. stuck in their throat, wasn't it? It stuck in their throat. Like they couldn't stomach paying. And that was a, I think that was a 20% take. So he'd made 120 for us. <laughs> <laughs> we paid him 20, but they couldn't stomach paying the 20. It's funny, isn't it? Mm. It's a very behavioural thing, yeah. isn't it? Some of our... Listeners are fund managers. What tips can you give them if they are they going to talk to, to me anymore, Daniel? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. I would. <laughs> Come with a good business case. Don't walk in with um, uh, a wish list. You you got to know certain things before you walk in and and present how you're going to operate. What's my capital structure look like? What's my investment philosophy? In what markets am I going to make money? In what markets am I going to struggle? How much do I need to be break even? Um, how, how what what does my team look like if I'm successful? You'd be surprised at how many you ask that question. They have no idea, and it's sort of like, well, you you might operate in the early days on the smell of an oily rag, but if you are successful as a fund management business, you are going to need more people and you should have that built into your business plan um how long can i last you know before it really hurts if i'm funding it myself how long is my funding partner going to stay with me right those fundamental questions have to be answerable maybe not on the first meeting but definitely by the time you've come back and seen me the second time (laughs) First time you might ask me a few questions about what should I do. The yeah. second time you better have answered those questions and come in with a business plan because yeah. you can't walk into um, Ian Patrick at Sunsuper and say, look, Ian, you know, back me. I've got no backers. I don't know what, you know, I just want to do this. Like you've got to go into a big fund like Sunsuper with how you're going to make their money and make their members better off, etc. or rest or anyone like you you've got to have a value proposition how often would you see managers come in with a half-baked business plan well it depends whether it's that first meeting or the second usually by the second they've got it worked out the first one might be a little bit iffy right but we're in a privileged position because as you know you talked about it before we have backed a, a number of firms over the years and a lot of young people who want to start up do come and ask, you know, a little bit of advice. And I've given it free today so they don't have to buy me a coffee anymore, which is good. Uh, I'll, I'll kick the weight off. Um, no, so 
I, I, I do think um, you've got to understand what the business is going to look like in your growth phase and in your mature phase. It's very interesting. Guys know what it looks like and how hard it might be in the growth phase, but they haven't necessarily worked out the economics in the mature phase. And and I, and I the backers of boutiques are almost in a similar boat. Some of them have got it right now, but in the old days, you know, we take X all the way through, blah, blah, blah. And when they're really successful, you know what? That X is a big number, and the guys who are running the money don't like it. Yeah. And so... There has to be a recognition of a mature business as opposed to a growing business. That's a really good point. Uh, you know, if things go if things go badly, well, the backers have generally risked money they could afford to lose. Uh, the person having a go or persons having a go have have lost. But it also hurt their of, yeah. career for a very long period of so, time. So they're the ones really taking the risk. But mm. as you say, it's the arguments happen when things go right because mm. that's when everybody's unhappy about their respective the take. slice of the cake <coughs> of the pie. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, it's a real issue. You touched on this very early on in our conversation. I just wanted to come back to it in a bit more detail. So. Jana started out as a privately owned firm. Yep. Then it became part of a much larger public firm. Yep. And now it's a private firm again. Part part private. Part private. Yep. So some of your your uh, competitors are divisions of public companies, and some of them are owned by their clients. Do you think the business model of a consultant matters? I do. I'm going to be hedge my bets here because I do think if I was running a big multinational. And I'm not saying, you know, we all know who those guys are. If I was running them, I have to be a big part of a big organisation because I'm going to go into markets where I need, a, you know, a, some backing because I might be in um, those markets for three, four years not making any money, in fact, losing money because I've hired people. Um, and I've met my contemporaries in places like Hong Kong and, and Seoul, Korea and uh, in Japan and like they can go five years and, and and they're not break it, they're nowhere near break even right, so you need, if you're really big global, you do need to be a part of a big organisation with big deep pockets and let's be honest, the big ones nowadays are part owned by insurance companies or they're part owned by fund managers or life companies, etc. So um, those people have got deep pockets. But but their consulting business is generally a rounding error on the on the company's revenues and not necessarily not necessarily if they're into the outsourced CIO model. And um, look having just gone so then the only, to the US yeah. um, if you think the UK has done it it's nothing compared to what is happening in the US where you've got small government funds uh, outsourcing the CIO thing. And it's not just the consulting firms. It's the, the Vanguards, the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs. Everyone's in the game. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, it's a very, very competitive game. Is that going to happen here in Australia? No, I don't. Well, I think it did. That was called Exit. Corporate super left, right, and centre. It it happened. Um, 
no, I think we're in a consolidation phase here. But so, so my answer is, I think it depends on how big you want to be. If you want to stay in your own market and just be excellent at what you do within your own um, hemisphere, you probably get away with employee ownership and that's probably the best model because you've got buy-in from all the senior consultants. But then, as we all know, it, it comes to the point of changeover from one generation to the next generation and have you got that right in terms of the next generation owning the equity already, building up their equity over time as they become more important in the business and at the end taking the senior consultants out in an orderly fashion and not causing a corporate event, which when you look overseas, whether it's funds managers or consultants, that's what's generally happened. You've got this generation and then the next, they haven't given them equity away to the next generation or not given it away, but haven't, haven't filtered it down. Yeah. They haven't filtered the equity down over time. And so they end up being this massive equity holder and they need a corporate event to extract their wealth because the guys underneath can't afford it. Okay. So I, I think it depends what you want to be. If you want to be the biggest consultant in the world, you better have somebody who's got a big <laughs> checkbook. <laughs> so in terms of consultants, there used to be four main ones in Australia institutionally, a lot of others. but sort of In the four. 1990s, there were 20. There were 20. Well, now you could argue there's almost only two, really, of any size. We won't say who they are. But whether it's two, four, or some other number, is it is it now getting a bit too concentrated? Is there enough diversity of of views and? No, there it's, it's no way it's no way it's that concentrated. I'd, I'd argue today there's twenty consulting firms, there's fifteen sitting in in funds, Aussie Super, um, uh, Sun Super. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, so you're saying right? it's okay because people are internalising. Yeah. Well, they've internalised part of the consulting function, right? So there's not the the four or five of us. We're we're an add-on to the internal teams now. We're helping internal teams. We're we're providing breadth. They provide the depth. And and um. So I don't think there's only four. I think there's something like 15 because of the internalised teams. That's, a, that's an interesting take on the concentration issue. So moving on to the home stretch, I have a couple of quick questions aimed more so at... So is this like um, uh, hard? I've got f- five seconds to answer each question. <laughs> no, you can take longer than five seconds, but right. um, I, I'd like to sort of finish up on a yeah. note where we're... Uh, where we have some practical tips for institutional investors, whether they be your clients or other institutions. So what are some common mistakes that you see institutions making that they should avoid? Uh, I I, I think um, the sole purpose test is a wonderful test. Um, Don't get distracted by all of the other things around super, concentrate on you know, delivering member returns. Um, you, you can get a little bit distracted at times around the peripheral. Mm-hmm. I think that's good advice. 
Most institutional balance funds have CPI plus 4 or 5% targets. Are they realistically achievable? And if so, what can funds do to achieve them? Uh, they're more like 3, 3.5 for a balance fund near those. But um, uh, they're achievable on, our, on, on the numbers, um, but um, we don't need any big mistakes in the world. Um, look... The margin over inflation that we're going to achieve over the next decade is going to be lower than the margin that we have achieved over the last 10 years because of where we're starting from, right? And when we went back, in, if I was in 98 and we'd had this conversation, I would have said for the next decade, the returns you're going to get out of a super fund are going to be lower than the decade before because of the, where the starting point is. I do agree with Jeremy here, right? The starting point is vitally important about what you expect over the next decade. And the starting point, we're starting it relatively expensive in a historical context. So if we stay expensive over the 10 years, we'll probably get a balanced return of CPI plus three. Okay. But if we go from expensive to cheap, the next decade could be quite difficult because we're starting expensive. Okay. And how can they achieve it? I wasn't a great believer in private equity back in the old days. Um, I, I was a bit sceptical. But when you look at what our funds have been able to achieve in owning businesses in the infrastructure space and I would also add in owning properties in the property space... And if they do private equity well, the sort of returns that you can generate out of a good private equity program, doing a lot of co-investments and things like that. I think owning businesses, owning the capital structure, owning how you allocate capital across that and when to allocate, you're in control. If you do that well, if you really do that well, there's a lot of money to be made. And you're not worried that those businesses are more expensive than public equities and there's a lot of money chasing them? No, because, be, yes, of course. But if you, if, you, if you own a great business and you've got good management and you've incentivised them right, the fact that you own when you're going to put more capital into the business to help it expand, when you're going to drag out your dividends and there's no, you know, like you're in control. And if you do it really well, I do think they're wonderful ways of wealth generation. Okay. <clears throat> so what would you say are the biggest challenges facing institutional investors at the moment? Getting set into the assets we just talked about because you're right. There's lots of people who've decided what I've just articulated and there's a lot of them trying to get into the, that space. And and a lot of them are saying, you know, like for the next decade or so I'm in a growth phase and then after that I'm in a sort of mature phase. And so in the growth phase they're getting set into these businesses and they're paying up to get set. Now only time will tell if they've paid too much. Um, and then it'd be lovely if you could buy these wonderful businesses at half what you know we have to pay today. But we are in a competitive space, and the one bit of warning I'd say to all of us is: 
The world has much more savings today than historically has ever been the case. Um, if you look at China, you took 500 million people, 500 million, you took them out of poverty and you have turned them into capitalist savings machines. They're looking for investments. They're looking for places to put their money as well. That's half a million billion people extra. And that doesn't account for all the extra wealth that you've seen the average Australian generate, the average person in the UK generate, or the average person in America generate. Every one of those people is looking for somewhere to put their money and generate a real rate of return. We're in a world full of money looking for investment return. Okay. So final question. Mm. What are three things that institutions can do to improve their investment decision-making? We talked about philosophy before. Be very certain about what your investment philosophy is. It will save you in all circumstances. If you have a belief system, it will stand you in really good stead going into the future. You won't get everything right, but you have a story to tell to your your ultimate um, member. We're managing the money this way. We're doing it this way for these reasons. And as long as you're disciplined in that, you will win in the longer term. Whether you have growth or value, like I'm just saying, like you win in the end if you're disciplined. It's the ones who waver between, you know, what they believe one minute and what and believe the next. They're the ones that'll get into trouble. Okay, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Hopefully, we can have you on again as a guest in the future. Thank you, Daniel, and uh, all the best. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.